as Jesus is finishing up his greatest prayer, longest recorded that, prayer that we have for him in John chapter 17, he turns his attention to people who have yet to believe. In fact, he says it a lot more confidently. He says for people who will believe the message that comes through the disciples. And so uh, as we look at that, we're going to be looking at what the implications are for this, why Jesus had this on his mind right before he goes to the cross. And so uh, we've gone through, uh, we've broken up this prayer into three different parts. And so if you're looking at your Bible at John chapter 17, you can kind of see how naturally this progression of thought flows from Jesus in this prayer. In part one, his prayer begins with Jesus praying that God might glorify himself uh, through Jesus Uh, so that Jesus could reflect that glory back to God so that others might be brought into eternal relationship with God. And then part two, he transitions to not praying for the entire world, but just praying specifically for the disciples, that they might be brought together in unity based on God's truth, being sanctified by God's truth, by putting in practice, being obedient to that. And we talked about how that impacts us as disciples. We're disciples now, and so we're a part of that legacy of that message being passed down. And Jesus transitions then into part three, talking about that change that comes in the world, that believers now will come to know who Jesus is, know who God is, come to love him and serve him and follow him based on the message that Jesus leaves with the disciples that they continue to spread out throughout the world. Uh, So in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, this will finish out Jesus' prayer uh, for for us uh, today. And Jesus says this, My prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given, you have given me to be with me where I am, And to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. It doesn't take much reading throughout the New Testament and hearing what Jesus has to say, what his disciples and apostles began to teach and share and spread throughout churches around the region that then goes throughout the world to see a theme of sharing your faith as being a part of a disciple of Jesus. But here in this prayer, this, this foundational prayer that Jesus, uh, that Jesus prays with and in front of his disciples to God, Jesus makes a very explicit uh, primary case for one of the end results for his ministry on earth that would be that people would share their share the message of Jesus, how they've been changed by who Jesus is, and what it looks like to begin to follow him and have their life changed as well. This is the result that his ministry on earth would send in motion. He's very direct about the expectation, and he's very matter-of-fact in his assertion that this expectation will be met. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Uh, There's so many great parts of this prayer to incorporate within our own prayer life and what that looks like for us as we kind of direct our hearts and minds toward what God's heart and mind is directed by. Uh, But this sentence is so poignant 
for understanding how others focused Jesus was for what he was about to accomplish. Like Chip mentioned earlier, Jesus is thinking about us, those who will believe as he's about to go to the cross. And, and keep in mind that throughout Jesus' ministry, this is regularly to a shocking degree uh, in terms of how people thought about religious propriety and how those things should work. The way that Jesus cared about other people who were not already in the club uh, was astonishing to so many people around him. Uh, our natural tendency is to expect people to behave before they belong, and yet Jesus always started with what he had in common with the other person, even when other people couldn't see what that looked like. In uh, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells one of his uh, more well-known parables. There's actually two that he tells in conjunction with each other. The first one is the parable of the 99 sheep and the one who's lost, and so he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. To a lesser degree, he tells a, a well-known a parable. He talks about a woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one of them in her house, and she turns over everything until she can find that one coin. And in both cases... Once that lost sheep was found, once that lost coin was found, there was this great celebration that people came uh, together and enjoyed together. And Jesus told those parables as a result of how the religious leaders of the day were reacting to him spending time with sinners. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, for example, uh, Luke records for us that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells these two parables as a result of that, and you can read those uh, on your own if you'd like, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, but the conclusion of that, in verse 10, when the celebration comes for those lost things that were found, Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And it's not that Jesus had this overly complicated program for his approach to sharing God's kingdom uh, with outsiders. Um, the, you know, the accusatory mutterings of the religious leaders of the day kind of clue us in into what Jesus' grandiose plan for sharing the message of God with other people was. It was welcoming them and, and eating together. Like, those were two of the primary ways that Jesus spent time with other people. I mean, who doesn't want to do those things, right? I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. Food? Yes, absolutely, I'm there. Uh, are you going to welcome me? Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's do it. Uh, Jesus would go out of his way to give himself to those who were not already privileged to be standing in relationship uh, before God, or at least not in the way that religious leaders of the day thought that they should. Uh, he created tension and caused more complication in his relationships as a result of this, yet he was completely comfortable with residing in this radical middle because part of being in is drawing others in as well. There are a few things that draws closer to the throne room of God than when someone becomes a disciple of Jesus. As Jesus says earlier in that parable, I mean, this is, this is what makes the throne room of heaven stop, pay attention, and rejoice. And it's something that we get to take part in as well as disciples. I mean, this is the premium that God puts on relationships, that's in the context of eternity, that it's about being communally unified in relationship with God, and that fully understanding the relationship we're invited into means inviting others into it alongside and with us. There are all kinds of options for a group of people who are directed by faith to be about and work toward and seek to experience. And yet in this ongoing theme of unity in Jesus' prayer, there are some foundational pieces that those options ought to be built on. John chapter 17, verse 22 and 23 
Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, which just pause there for a second. I've given them the glory that you gave me. This is an astonishing, amazing, uh, all-inducing statement that Jesus makes uh, about his glory, God's glory, being revealed and reflected on our lives is, is an amazing and astonishing thing that God would entrust his glory with people like us. No offense. No perfect people allowed, though. It says that on the, on the thing as you, as you came in, right, on the sign before you drove in. Uh, and Jesus says that they may be one as we are one. That's why he gives, gives the glory. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, those who are disciples and those who will become disciples. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. In other words, Jesus desires that those who do believe and will become believers might be one because that ongoing development of relationship will do two things. It will let the world know that Jesus is from God. This unity and relationship that we develop and share with each other will, will give evidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that people are loved to the same degree as the Father loves the perfect Son. I mean, this, this is, an, again, an amazing and astonishing thing that, that the Heavenly Father, our Creator, would, would also love us just as much as the one who has not turned their back on God. Jesus was perfect. He didn't do anything wrong, and yet he took our sin on his shoulders. And the fact that God would extend the same love that he extends the Son to us is, is just it's life-changing. It's, it's, it's life altering to consider this and to know that there are people who need to know that and experience that in their life as well. This is at the forefront of Jesus thinking about our relation, what our relationships are guided by uh, and guided toward, and so it also should be a part of shaping our thinking and what fruit our faith is bearing. And so as, as individuals, as disciples of Jesus, then we look at ourselves and see, right, these are the things that Jesus cared about. These are the things that Jesus wants us to incorporate in our prayer life and our faith life. So what does it look like for my actions and my words uh, to be leading uh, toward letting the world know that Jesus is from God and that they are fully loved and ready to be welcomed in. How is that being represented in my life? Because when we're not intentional about that, we're not a, aware about a keeping what's near to the heart of Jesus, near to our own hearts, our natural tendence, tendency, rather than uh, being the glory of God being reflected in us and unity being reflected in us and love uh, being driven in, in how we live and sharing the message of Jesus, is our natural tendency is to be more driven by fear in, in those things and what we're called to do and be in our lives. For example, like when we talk about sharing our faith and telling other people about Jesus, one of the first things that I know categorically comes through everyone, because I've experienced it myself, is, is that there's this fear uh, of, of perception that, that we have. Like none of us want to, I don't think, I, I don't think this is true, but I don't think any of us want to be Ned Flanders in how we share Jesus, right? Like, I, uh, this morning, you know, after church, I'd just love to go to your neighbor's house, knock on the door, and sing the Noah's Ark song to them. Like, like would you be willing to, how many of us would be willing to do that, right? I mean, now, if this was Jesus, I, I would like to say, like, if this is Jesus' plan for us, and he said in Scripture, well, you need to sing the Noah's Ark song to tell people about me, 
okay, like what I believe to be true about Jesus, okay, then I would, I would force myself to do that. But I don't think that's necessarily his approach. But we have this fear that, well, how is this other person, like, are they going to peg me as a Ned Flanders? How is this person going to think about me in terms of how, you know, Christianity is talked about in popular culture, in the news, whatever it may be? How is this person going to react to uh, me at work or in my uh, hobbies or with my family when we're out doing things? Like, how, what, is, what is their perception of me going to be? And when we're driven by that fear, then we're not as concerned about being reflectors of God's glory as much as we are concerned about our own glory and how people are seeing that. And so that's kind of the natural thing that we fall, fall into. And so being directed by how Jesus approaches people and thinking, oh, man, like one of Jesus, and this is not all Jesus did, but one of Jesus' primary like, ways that he got engaged with people is he welcomed them and he was willing to eat with them, like share a table with people who other people would never consider sharing a table with. And you think, man, that's, that's a little bit more doable because that almost sounds like just not being a jerk. You know, like... I might be able to do that. <laughs> like, I, I, I might be able to incorporate that into my life. Uh, number two, the, the second one is fear of ignorance. And, and by that, I, I don't mean, like, ignorance in terms of, like, not that people aren't intelligent, but that you don't know, like, the actual meaning and definition of the word. The fear of ignorance is that, well, if I start into talking to somebody about Jesus and I say, well, actually, the thing that's changed my life is that I, I think about it in a different way because of my belief, that, you know, faith that I have in that Jesus rose from the dead, and they say, and they start questioning that, and they have different ideas about what that should look like and whether or not that's intelligent or smart to think, and we think, well, I don't have the answers for all those, all those questions, and so I'm not sure I'm not sure that it really I should even start the discussion because I don't want to look like an idiot, you know, and, and there's the fear of perception that comes in, in there uh, again. And yet Jesus doesn't call us to know everything, but he simply calls us to share the message of, of the good news of how we've been impacted and how we've been changed and affected by who he is. And look, there's plenty of time to be able to say, hey, you know what, that's a great question. Let's continue that dialogue next week over lunch, and or coffee, or whatever, over food, right? There's that, there's that theme running through there. And, and I'll look that up, and I'll think about that, and I'll consider that. Because it's not simply about just arguing the person down and forcing them to come to the conclusion, because that always works, right? Forcing them to come to the conclusion, oh, everything I've done in my life has been wrong up to this point. Uh, but it's been in sharing a relationship with them and a conversation with them so they can experience who Jesus is through how you approach uh, them uh, hearing the message from you. Uh, and then the last one is the fear of rejection. Um, I, I think this, uh, th this one is the one I would want us, the place I would want us to be in the most, if we're going to pick one of these fears uh, out of the three, is, is the, the tension and the sense of urgency that we feel in letting people know because we know that there's an eternal relationship at stake. It's like, hey, this is who God is. This is what, what he means. This is why Jesus came. I want you to know this. I want you to experience this, and I want it to change your life. I want you to choose to be a disciple of Jesus now, and not everybody's going to say yes to that. And, and the thing that I would encourage you on, if you have that fear, if you're, you're in that place, is, is just to let you know it's, it's never going to be contingent upon you. It, it's not about how wise you are, it's not about how witty you are, it's not about how smooth you are or uh, argumentative you are or whatever it may be. Like, those are not the things that save people. Those are not the things that communicate to people who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus takes care of that. 
And so it's not about us. And so the fear of rejection is, it has nothing to do with us. People are not rejecting us. It's, it's about if we're reflecting God's glory the way that he calls to us, us to, and we're not creating artificial obstacles like the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. It's really about them choosing whether or not they want Jesus in their lives. And so these are the things that when we understand the love that God has for us and how he expresses that message through how Jesus walked, how Jesus talked, how we continue to try to model uh, that in, in our lives, like those are the things that make a difference in other people. It's, it's us, rather than being fear-directed, being love-directed by how Jesus approaches us and sharing himself with us, like those are the things that, that we're called to do and be about in our life. It should be uh, uh, something that we approach with wisdom and with thoughtfulness and with hospitality. Um, but most of all, the closing of Jesus' prayer ought to stir our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength to continue passing on this legacy of Jesus to others in our lives so that they can be passing it on to others as well. Jesus' prayer for all believers comes with the expectation that disciples make disciples. Um, those who, believe, who will believe in me through their message. That we gather here together in worship is proof that Jesus' 2,000-year-old plan bears fruit. That we desire the same for others who do not yet gather together in a congregation is an inseparable result of being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, as a church, we've said that we are concerned with our mission is to help people find Jesus and love God. And that's simply a pared-down way of saying exactly what Jesus has called us to do, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. These things are inextricably linked. And to go and baptize and teach throughout the whole world the great commandment and the great commission. These are the things that we're called to as believers in Jesus. This is why we gather. This is why we have relationships with each other. It's not just about what God can do for us individually, but what he does through us collectively, as a family of believers. There's so many other good and worthwhile distractions, um, but man, the, the main thing that I want to hear more and more uh, from, from people, for our church, for Christians all around uh, the world, is how can I be more of a part of unifying with those who do believe and those who have yet to believe um, and, and bring those, those two groups of people together? Like, what does that look like for me in my life? Because this is what Jesus wants me to be about. Uh, I, and I know one of the things that make this, makes this difficult is, and I don't know if you've noticed this, like, you can have a different experience depending on which Christian you meet. Have you, you noticed that before? Like, we, we can't just say, well, we can, but it's very difficult to just say, I'm a Christian, and then expect that everybody knows exactly what that means. We've got our own definitions of what that looks like. And I've noticed that over the years that that can be really inconsistent, Sometimes it can be tough just to let somebody know that you're a Christian because you can see, like, oh, there's some other people that get a little bit more play for some reason and get a little bit more uh, attention that are definitely not how we would define ourselves as Christians. And that, that can be a very frustrating thing. It can be a very difficult uh, thing. We, in other words, suffer from quality control. Um, I, I think globally as, as, as a church and a, um, as, as a group of believers, uh, we can... Uh, meet Christians who are down the road, and we think, man, I, I feel no connection with them, and yet we can meet Christians from totally different backgrounds, 
And somehow we come together. One of the neat things about this congregation is how many different types of people and backgrounds that people come from that come together. And the reason why that is is, is because the, the priority is different. The reason why we can have Christians who seem like they should come together and be unified and it should make sense that, that they all believe the, th- the same things and don't, and then people who come from completely different backgrounds that are completely different life experience and come together and they are able to be unified is because there is a, has everything to do with the prioritized religious expression. And by that I mean, like, the difference is, is when we're directed by ourselves and when we're directed by Jesus. And, and that's the difference maker. That the way that Jesus talks about this and prays this prayer is that we're, we're, he's not talking about, hey, you know, I just want the disciples to experience the best kind of personal relationship with God that they possibly can. No, he's talking about, hey, uh, we're going to be thinking about what it looks like to share this message with people who don't yet have it. And this, this is the biggest difference in our thinking. Um, I want to read, and this is... I, don't, I don't, didn't put it on the screen, uh, but I want to read this quote from the end of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I want you to consider, and if you need to close your eyes to be able to uh, pay attention to it or, or hear it well, I, d- I just want you to consider the implications of how Jesus talks about sharing the message uh, of, G- of, of the gospel uh, and what it looks like uh, to understand the relationship that he calls us into and how that how that's connected. So this is from C.S. Lewis uh, from Mere Christianity. He writes this, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, how gloriously different are the saints. But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will, never, will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Jesus says in John 17, verse 23, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. Jesus reveals this consistency of following God through Jesus throughout his prayer, being more like Jesus to bring glory to God, being disciples who know that he is from God and that we're striving to be more like him. By being as consistent as possible with that faith and belief so that others can recognize it when they see it and know what to do to be a part of it. Living as a disciple offers a clear picture of what we're inviting people into as a disciple. This, this is why there's a premium that Jesus puts and the New Testament puts on what it looks like to be obedient to how God has called us to live. It's because our actions and our words, all those things right there, are part of sharing the message of God. It's not just about like sealing the deal with someone and having all the right answers of, well, here are the next steps that you need to take. I mean, we know what those are. Because we can look at the examples through Scripture. We know what every believer does in Scripture is they say yes to Jesus. They believe, they repent, they confess, they're baptized, they bear fruit as disciples. And so we, we can put that together. But the way that we communicate those things is that we live out those steps of faith every day in our relationships, whether they be at home, whether it be friends, whether it be at work, wherever it might be, with our enemies, whatever it looks like, that, that's what we're called into, is putting ourself to si- ourselves to the side so that we can experience the unity that Jesus prays for everyone to have together. Not those, just those who are in, but those who are yet to be in as well. And so my, my prayer is, is that this prayer of Jesus becomes, um, becomes something that we're directed by, not only as, as individuals, but continually more and more as a church. I mean, Jesus, uh, the end of his prayer in, in chapter 17, verse 24 through 26, uh, and, and this is what we're closing with, um, like this, this is the prayer that we can be praying actively and living out together. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. That's our prayer for those of us that are here and those of us that, those that we're connected to with that are not here. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them too. That's the prayer that Jesus has for us. That's the, Jesus, that's the prayer that Jesus will continue to have relevant for the people that are to come after us. And so as we, as we uh, strive to incorporate looking and talking and acting more and more like Jesus every day in our lives, as we find ourselves more and more in him, we help other people uh, find him as well. And so this, is, this, this, this prayer, this foundational piece of God's heart and mind and soul that he reveals to us through Jesus right before he goes to the cross for us is, it's something that should change how we think about how Jesus thinks about us, how Jesus thinks about uh, those that are around us, and it should change how we think about what we do to be able to share that message with those who are yet to believe as well. Let me pray for us uh, uh, as we prepare uh, to celebrate that together through communion. Uh, God, thank you for what you've done through your son Jesus. God, we ask that 
we can clearly see how your Holy Spirit is directing us to share that message with others that we, um, we allow ourselves to be directed by who you've called us to be, that we're able to remove uh, some of the distractions and obstacles from us being able to see the path that you've laid for us to be able to share who you are and what you've done for us and in us. God, we praise you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen.